Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you conquered the grave, that there is hope in Jesus. Not hope in just us piecing together some sort of righteousness of ourselves that's just filthy rags, really. But Lord, our hope is built in something more secure. Lord, we thank you that in you we have an anchor for our souls, both sure and steadfast. Lord, we thank you that we do not have a God who is dead and defeated and consigned to the history books, but one who is alive and alive forevermore. You have conquered the grave. We rejoice in who you are. And so, Lord, I pray, may your word be alive to us now. May it speak and may it draw us deeper and deeper and deeper into you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to get stuck in right in and we'll uh, get into the text here. Uh, verse uh, 17 of Luke chapter 6. Hopefully it's going to come up. Yep, there we go. Uh, and he, this, that's Jesus, uh, if you remember, we kind of referenced it in a wee bit this morning that uh, he's healed uh, this man with a withered hand. The Pharisees are raging. They're so furious. How dare he heal on a Sabbath? They couldn't really get over the fact that, you know, someone was healed, but the fact that he did it on the wrong day was just too much for them. And it's all kind of kicking off. And so uh, he, uh, Jesus kind of goes... Uh, goes away, he, he kind of gets away from it all, he then goes and uh, goes up a mountain, he prays, he spends all night praying, and he picks his disciples, uh, oh sorry, from his disciples he picks the 12 apostles, okay, and then now we're going straight in to verse 17, and so he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you. Let's just pause it there. See, this morning we, we saw that Jesus has... Um, Has, uh, he spent time praying, he spent time picking them, and now he's getting about ministering to the people. And so he comes down from the mountaintop and begins to preach a very similar sermon to what we have uh, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the question comes up, and a critical reader of the Bible, and I hope you are critical readers of the Bible, I hope you ask yourselves questions whenever you read things, because a critical reader of the Bible will look at the sermon that, that Jesus preaches in Luke 6 and says, well, this is different to the sermon that's preached in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So is this the same version or the same sermon, but it's just recorded differently, or is this a different sermon? Because they are very similar, but there's a couple of dissimilar things going on. I don't think it's the same sermon. There's things left out of Matthew 
And, and there's things included in Luke. There's things that are unique about both. There is overlap for sure, but a lot of what we read in Matthew is not found in Luke's copy of this of the sermon. It's similar, but it's different enough to ask the question, is Luke's version the same, or is it different? I bring it up because I thought well, until fairly recently, I suppose, that it was probably just a, 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 someone else's copy of the same sermon. You know, I mean, I could preach uh, a sermon, and even before we came in, I could say, okay, uh, Alan, what did you think of the sermon this morning? What did you get out of it? Okay, hopefully good things. But then I could say, okay, but David, what did you get? And, and if they tried to retell the sermon, they, they'd maybe pull out different things. And so if Matthew's copying down one sermon uh, and Luke's copying down another sermon, is it unreasonable to think that there's maybe slight different emphases put on things? Maybe. But uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I think it's a different, a different sermon. Now, some of you are looking at me and saying, we don't care. I understand. But for those of you who do care, let me say this. It could be the same sermon and people are just putting their own different emphases on it. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He wants to highlight certain things, so he puts a wee bit more detail, and he wants them to see that it's anchored in Scripture. They want to see that, that this Messiah bears up to the tests of scrutiny. Luke, on the other hand, is writing to Greek Christians, so he's got a different focus it could be that they're just, you know, they're trying to pull out the salient points of the message and they're omitting other parts. <coughs> it could simply be, hey, Jesus preached it in Aramaic. Uh, and by the time it gets translated into the Greek text and then back into the English, maybe there's just a wee bit of license there. That's one theory. The other thought, and this is the one that I lean towards, is that it's a similar sermon preached in two different places at two different times. And I lean towards that, and here's why. In Matthew, well, very obviously, in, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is called before Levi is called. So Matthew records a sermon that he wasn't there to, to record, and he gets it second hand. But in Luke, it comes after. So simple reading suggests that Luke's version comes a while after the sermon was recorded in Matthew. Jesus did want to make the same points over and over again. So it seemed to me logical, though, that he would preach the same sermon, similar sermon, in two different occasions. Why wouldn't there be overlap? Why wouldn't he quote the things that he said? If everything that he said was absolutely perfect and everything flawless, of course he's going to quote himself. I'll be honest. As a preacher, we are often inclined to reuse sermons to different audiences. Okay? Why do twice the work? <laughs> I'm doing Bible studies in Larn throughout February, each Wednesday night in February. On the 16th, when Matthew Hamilton's here to speak, I'm going to be in Larn. I'm not writing new material. I'll take old stuff and I'll rework it, but I'll work with the foundations that I already have. And so, Jesus, it would seem to me perfectly logical that if he's preaching the same message that has the same focus about the kingdom of God, of course, the two sermons are going to be very similar with some differences. No big deal. I understand that. 
But in verse 17, we have a very clear picture as to why it's two different sermons. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that was preached on a mountain. But when we get to verse 17, it clearly tells us he came down with them and stood on a level place. So this was in two different places. So rather than the Sermon on the Mount, this is the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Flat. And I have no intention of working all the way through this sermon. I'm more interested in what's coming in the later parts of the sermon. But he uses this phrase, blessed. Blessed are you. Now, to me, that word can be translated as, oh, how fortunate. Oh, how, oh, to be congratulated. Oh, how blissful. Oh, how happy is the one who. The word makarios is the Greek word, and it embodies all those definitions. Christianity should be marked by joy. By If we are blessed by God, if God has blessed us, there should be a joy that transcends. Blessed are those who God has saved. Happy. How, how fortunate, how, how glad, how, how rejoicing are the people that God has saved. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. It should be evident. It should be seen. How sad that Christianity is often seen by the world as something that takes joy away. How sad it is that goes, oh, here comes the Christians. Well, there's no more fun. Yeah. All right, and we get it. I mean, listen, the number of times I walk into a room and people go, oh, here comes the pastor. Here comes the preacher. I, I play football on a Wednesday night. Uh, and there's been a bit of a turnover with, with a lot of the players. It used to be uh, a lot of sort of Christian guys who, from previous churches, and we kind of played together, and it was nice. Uh, but with families and people moving, uh, there's been different people who've come in. Uh, and now the majority of them are not saved, uh, and I don't know them. So whenever, just before we're playing or just afterwards, you try to get to know them. You try and start up a conversation because, you know, it's just polite, <laughs> you know, and you want to get to know them. And so... Eventually, about three questions in, you normally get the question, so what do you do? Actually, I work down in in Newton Arts. I'm I'm a pastor. Oh. And you can see them kind of looking at, oh, we really wish we could start this football match now. Oh, I shouldn't have talked to this guy. Because the assumption straight away is, He's no fun. He's going to be someone who takes joy away from my life, not adds to it. And to me, that is such a sad picture of what Christianity is about. Now, hopefully, (laughs) when they get to know me, they're still not thinking that, but it's sad that that's what so many people think about Christianity. But that's how it's been betrayed for such a long time. Jesus then goes on to say this. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day 
and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. See, here's a reason why people have maybe a hard time with some of the Christians. Here's a reason why some Christians are struggling. Here's why they are poor. Here's why some Christians are hungry. Here's why they're getting a hard time. Here's why they're weeping. It's because these Christians that Jesus is speaking to, who are supposed to be blessed, it's because they're being persecuted. And uh, we continue on. In Jerusalem, you see, um, at the time, there, there was going to be a lot of people getting saved. But so much of the economy in Jerusalem was built around the temple. And with people getting saved and people starting talking about Jesus as the Savior, as the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world, they were, getting, they were losing their jobs. People were going hungry. And as people were coming to go to Christ... They were losing their jobs. So persecution, becoming a Christian, meant poverty. It meant hunger. It meant weeping because they were now attached to Christ. And Jesus says, but blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you. They're losing their jobs left, right, and center. And by the time Paul is, is taking over the, the early church and is writing and is doing different things, he takes an offering from the Gentile churches to try and help these people in Jerusalem because there's a famine and it's, they're struggling to cope. And so it gets worse and worse as time goes on to the point where Paul will speak to Timothy and say, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It'll come with the turf. The one thing that I really want to stress to you this evening, though, is that qualifying term that's in there. How blessed, how happy are those who are hated by people and are persecuted. Actually, that's not what it says. Sure, it's not. That's not what it says. There's a qualification in there. It says, on account of the Son. On account of the Son. You see, you must get this, and it's such an important concept. We can't allow our belief in Christ Jesus make us goofy and weird and obnoxious, okay? Okay? Because we, we try to spiritualize weird behavior, and then they're going, oh, well, they don't like me because I'm a Christian. And that's not the reason why they don't like you. Hate to break it to you, but there's other reasons why nobody likes you, okay? Because it could be, it could be that you're attached to Christ, it could be that. It could be because you speak about your Savior. It could be because that you live your life according to the Word of God. It could be that. But you know, sometimes it could just be annoying. It, it, it could be that you're just inviting in a, a reaction, and it's not because you're a Christian. It's because you're coming off as really weird. It, it could be because you're dominating conversations and you're putting people down. You could just be rude. And then when people react against you, it's like, oh, they're only saying that because I'm a Christian. No, it's got nothing to do with Christ. Be careful in your portrayal to the world of our Savior. We have to make sure we, we, we live in a way that is inviting. And we spent a lot of time this morning talking about that. When Levi got converted, his reaction was to the tax collectors either side of him. The tax collectors around says, come to my house. Come and feast. Come and celebrate because I'm different now. And I want to explain to you why I'm different. Here's Jesus. I want to introduce you to him. 
which was so different to how the Pharisees and the scribes reacted because they were just out there pointing fingers. Nothing attractive about that kind of a lifestyle. And so if they're rejecting you because you love Jesus, okay, that is a blessed thing. That's a precious thing. You're living in such a way that is incredible, and people are noticing. In Acts 5, they were persecuted for that reason. And, and it says that they walked away from the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. So there's that qualifying phrase. It's so important that you understand that if you're... Some people just want to spiritualize everything and say, oh, well, you know, they, they don't like me because I'm a Christian. Make sure that is the reason. Make sure that is the reason, but it's not always. But let's drop down to verse 27. Because Jesus was connecting these thoughts to these famous verses, okay? It's a response rooted in this rejection to our faith. What do we do with those people then who, when we're living for Christ and we're shining out for him and we're refusing to bend to the uh, popular political opinions in our culture? What happens whenever we're saying, no, actually, I'm not going to say that that's okay. I'm not going to give money to that fund. I'm not going to support that. I'm not going to do those things. What do we do when people turn on us, even though we've tried to be loving, we've tried to be tender, we've tried to be generous, we've tried to still be considerate, we've tried to do all those things, but people are still going to turn on us because we're taking a stand and we're speaking out for Christ. Whenever these kinds of people turn on us and they become our enemies, they've decided that they want our downfall, they want us out of the job, they want us to be quiet, they don't want us to have an opinion, we're, that we're not allowed to speak up for unborn babies, we're not allowed to speak about the sanctity of marriage, we're not allowed to speak about the... When people want to, that to happen, because we are Christians, what's the response I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Here we have the pinnacle of this sermon on the plain. That little statement that Jesus said, love your enemies, that separates the big boys from the little fish. That separates them all out. Love. Now, anyone can love. Anyone can love, all right? We all love somebody. We all love the people who love us. We love the people who, who are kind to us and uh, you know, kind of uh, suck up to us and inflate our ego. We love these people. And even if you don't, have anyone like that there very often we can find a wee bit of love for ourselves you know we love ourselves and we, everyone loves someone because it's easy to love those who are powerful it's easy to love those who are attractive it's easy to love those who are wealthy but imagine being able to and following through with loving people who other people would think you, there's no way you could love them how can you respond to them that way to the people who hate you the people who are working against you to silence you to undermine you that separates the men from the boys 
or should I say it separates the sheep from the goats? To have someone want your downfall and the genuine, the genuine reaction of your heart is to want them to be blessed, is to want God to work in their lives for their good. That's the pinnacle of this sermon. There's a cost to following Christ. That's part of the deal. So love the people who ask you to pay it. This is what Jesus can do in and through those who follow him. And this separates real Christianity, real Christianity from every other religion in the world. There's a lot of talk today, and it frustrates me whenever I hear people saying, you know, things like, well, you know, all religions are the same anyway. It's really, it doesn't matter which one you follow. It all gets you to the same place anyway, which, of course, is a load of nonsense. They, they are mutually exclusive. There is absolutely nothing about uh, religions, um, excuse me, they know absolutely nothing about these religions because one religion excludes the other all the time. Ravi Zacharias says the assumption that religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different is simply not true, but rather it's better to say that they are superficially similar and fundamentally different. I love that quote. I think it's brilliant. You see, Buddhism has no God whatsoever, but Hinduism is pantheistic. They, they have thousands and thousands, millions of gods and goddesses, big Gs and small Gs and demigods and all the rest of it. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are monotheistic. They've got one God. Those three definitions of God can't all be the same. Buddhism and Hinduism can't be the same when one saying, well, there is no God. Says, well, actually, there's millions of them. Well, that's all the same. How can that be the same? Therefore, and there's so much talk of that, you know, well, all religions are the same. And therefore, we think uh, it demands that we rationalize, well, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. Because we know Muslims who are peaceful. And I am one of those people who know, that, know some Muslims, and they are good people. I have no problem employing them well, obviously not in, in the church, but, you know, employing them if I had a shop or had uh, some business, I, there's no problem because they're good people. Of course they are. But that does not make Islam a religion of peace. Now, here's what people will say to those who oppose what I just said. Well, they might say, well, Jeff, look at your history books. Look at Christianity. Look at the Crusades. Christianity is hardly a religion of peace. And you know what? You're right. The Crusades are a horrible, horrible period of Christian history. But the Crusades aren't based on the book. The Crusades are uh, not based upon the reading of the New Testament or the Old Testament, but rather most people back then were illiterate. They didn't read the Bible. They didn't know the Scripture, but they went on this campaign because the people above them who were greedy and violent thought, let's take them into war, but let's tell them it was God. Let's tell them they're doing it for God and not for money. 
However, if you examine the books of the New Testament, if you look at the source and you compare it to the books of Islam, you get a different reading. Here in the Bible, we have our founder saying, love your enemies. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Whereas in Islam, it's different. You know, if you are in a category, if you're a Muslim and a different category, if you're not a Muslim, that's just how they see the world. The whole world is divided into two groups. You've got Dar al-Islam, which means house of Islam. That's for those who are good uh, Muslims, who are, are, who are doing their... their, their work through all the, the different uh, processes and, and, and are obedient and submitted to the will of Allah. And then the second category is Dar al-Harb, which means the house of war. And if you're not submitted to Allah, then you are in the house of war. And in the Quran, there are 109 verses called the war verses that tell a Muslim to hunt and to kill the people who are not submitted to the will of Allah. Islam is a religion of peace if you are in the house of Islam. But if you're in the house of war, it's not a war, a religion of peace. Not only is the source material there, but there are the hadiths and the sayings of Muhammad, which, in which they say non-combatants in war are okay to kill if you're fighting jihad against an enemy. And so... If you see the, on the news in Gaza or something like that there, uh, a Muslim a father holding his son up against him and using him as a human shield as he points a gun and is firing it. You say, that's terrible, that's horrible. How can that happen? Well, it's because it's in the text. Their materials say that that's okay, it's right. I've heard people saying, you know, what Islam needs is a reformation. The same way the Christian church had a reformation, you know, when we got Luther and we got the, the Protestant church and we got back to the, 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 the gospel and we got back to what it was all about. That's what Islam needs. It needs to get back to its roots and that'll destroy the fundamental uh, radical groups of Islam. Listen, what you're seeing is the reformation of Islam. You're seeing it in the radicalization of, of, of Muslims worldwide. That's what we're dealing with. And that's why I say this text separates Christianity from everyone else. So should we hate them? Because they're different? Because they don't agree with us? Because they hate us? No. We are told to love them. We're told that if we get slapped on one side of the cheek, to turn the other cheek. Now, I don't know if you've ever been slapped before. I'm married 10 years. I've had my fair share of slaps along the way. I think I'm being hilarious not everyone agrees. But what I can say is they've all been deserved. I've been told to say that. They've all been deserved. Um, but I can also say it hurts. <laughs> but we're still required to love. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. It's never nice being used. It's a horrible feeling. It's a nasty feeling. We want to react in anger and revenge and spiteful because that's how they've treated us. We'll do unto others. Huh? Dare I say that this is the litmus test for a, the mark of a transformed life. 
In verse 30, we read, Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. You know, it's interesting. Uh, different philosophers have different opinions and different uh, sayings and mantras throughout the wor- their, their life. Socrates, to sum it all up, said, Know thyself. Freud, uh, essentially, um, said, Be thyself. Christ is different. He says, Give thyself. Give thyself. Give yourself away to people and keep doing it. To paraphrase those verses that we've read, Jesus saying, Big deal. Big deal if you love the people who love you in return. Big deal. So what? If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. It's hard. It's hard because, uh, well, number one, no one likes getting a bad deal. All right? Seems, okay, oh, so I'm going to give you that stuff. I worked hard for that. Uh, it took me time. That was a lot of money for me, or that's a precious thing. That's time, because let's face it, one of the most precious things we have is time. And you know that it's going to be taken for granted. You know it's not going to be returned in time. Are we still prepared to do it? Because we like to have a good deal. We like to make sure that we're getting paid. No one likes to be taken for a mug. No one likes to be taken for granted. Uh, even in the church, whenever we, we, we're talking and we want to be generous and we want to give, but, but there's always a conversation saying, now, are we being foolish with the money? Because we, we, we have to be stewards. We have to be wise. We don't want to just throw it around. We, we have to be careful. We have to make sure that it's going to the right places and it's going to the right people, of course. But it's never a nice feeling that you're just thrown away, that you're not getting it back. Jesus says whenever you have an opportunity to be generous to people, that's not throwing it away. You might never see it again. But God sees what you're doing. And this is such a tough standard. It's such a tough standard. But by anchoring it in love, it's never the scenario where we're saying through gritted teeth, well, I don't really want to, but I guess I have to be nice. And it's gritted teeth. You know that term? It's about the natural reaction then. They hate Christ in me, but they need Christ. They need compassion. They need love. They need prayer. And when people speak against you because of that, it's a reflection on who they are. 
And it should never be a reflection of who we are. I've used it before, but forgive me for repetition. Whenever you have a sponge, when you squeeze it hard, what's on the inside, deep down in that sponge, comes to the surface. Christian, whenever the squeeze is on, what comes to the surface should be the attributes of God. That, that's what should come out to the top. So many times, we, we, we want to act like Christians whenever it's all going well. But as soon as it gets hard, we, want, we, we say, well, it's justification for being angry. It's justification for being bitter. It's justification for, for speaking out and lashing out. It's never ought to be the case. This isn't... Remember who we're talking about when we're talking about our enemies. This isn't about saying about how people are reacting against you because you've ripped them off or because you've been weird or because you've been angry or you got caught out in a lie or anything or the rest of it. But this is the response to Christ-likeness in our life. This is a response to, to Christ being made evident in our life. Christ says the thing to do is to keep showing that Christ-likeness in your life. Keep on keeping on. Keep on going. Keep doing what you're doing. Even though they put pressure on you to stop, don't stop being like Christ. Don't stop loving. Don't stop being generous. Don't stop being kind. Don't stop being compassionate. Don't stop just because they're trying to get you to stop. They're trying to get you to stop from being weird. You might want to listen to them though. <laughs> All right? If they're trying to get you to stop because you're being rude or obnoxious, you might want to listen to them. But if it's Christ in you, keep going. And Jesus says that not only can you endure that mistreatment of the enemy, but you can also rejoice in it and you can shine out in it. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. Which means that the command to love your enemy is a command to set your thing, mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. The command to love your enemy is a command to find your hope and your satisfaction in God and who he is and what he has promised, not in how people treat you and not in your popularity. Loving your enemy doesn't earn you your reward in heaven. But treasuring your reward in heaven empowers you to love your enemy. Okay? Loving your enemy doesn't earn you your reward in heaven, but treasuring your reward in heaven empowers you to, to love your enemy. But is it just the people who are out to get you that we should love? No. I want to widen the language a wee bit here. I would say this is a call to love anyone who doesn't love you in return. Who doesn't love <coughs> Excuse me, got someone caught my throat. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> I'm all right, thanks. No one rush. Jeepers, oh. Love, love, come on. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> Don't love people 
just to get love in return. <clears throat> love not expecting the same treatment in return. I think a lot of marriages would stay together if people loved like that. It says, I don't care how, how, where you are. I made a promise to you to love you and to cherish you. I'm going to do that to the best of my ability as long as I can. And as long as you let me, I'm going to keep doing that. So, so you don't love me, well, I'm not going to love you. It's not how the Bible teaches it. And so the point here in Scripture seems to be don't stop loving the person because they do things that offend you. Don't stop loving someone because they do something that dishonors you. Don't stop loving someone because they disappoint you or frustrate you or threaten you or even kill you. Love your enemies means keep on loving them. You keep on loving them. In that sense, maybe your enemy is a child or a grandchild who is totally against the things of God. Or maybe your enemy is, is an uncaring, un, uh, ill-tempered husband or a cantankerous neighbor who wants to fight over absolutely everything, every little leaf that blows into his yard or whatever it happens to be. Your enemy could be the members of the LGBTQ plus community who try to stir you and try to rile you up and provoke you to a reaction. Jesus says in every single occasion, you love them. Every single time, you love them. You love your enemies. You love your neighbors, whoever they may be. You love them. No Christian has the luxury of saying, well, I'm not talking to them. Or in a shop, you say, well, I'm not going to serve them. I'm not going to do business with them. I'm not going to... The kids in the Bible class in the mornings may get away with nonsense like that. I'm not talking to them. They pushed me. She pulled my hair. I'm not talking to them. That's stuff that belongs down there. But the grown-ups in this church do not have that option extended to them. Okay? You have no warrant from Jesus to snub someone. None. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. And that means, it means doing something as simple as greeting them. I'm not going to just ignore you. I'm not going to cut you out of my life. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to engage with you. I'm not going to give you the excuse to point the finger at me and say, well, you never spoke to me. You never give me the opportunity. You never give me the chance to apologize. You never give me the chance to talk it out. You never... We're not going to give them that chance. We're going to greet them because we still love them. We still want them in our lives. We still want to talk to them course we do we still want that friendship we still want that relationship and jesus is here saying do good and lend to your enemy in other words actions can speak louder than words as well so many times how many times have you heard churches say we're warm and welcoming and then someone slightly different walks in and going or how many times have you heard people saying you know oh i love you I, I, I care. We, we love the people around the neighborhood. Really? What have you done for them? Oh, we open the doors and they don't come in, but we love them. Actions speak louder than words, folks. Don't fake your way through a conversation and then be passive when you see someone struggling. That's not love. 
That's not what Paul had in mind when he quoted Proverbs 25 in Romans 12. He says, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him a drink. For in doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In Exodus 23, verse 5, it's a brilliant wee uh, illustration. It's maybe, it hasn't aged particularly well, uh, but the principle is still good. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, okay, maybe we don't see an awful lot of that in Newton Arts. Maybe down the peninsula you might still see people using donkeys, but if you see... I still love them, though. I still love them. If you see a donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I actually, I really love that principle. You see someone who hates you, you see them struggling, don't go, ha, God is judging you. Excuse me. Don't, don't just laugh at them. Don't just go, ha, God's having, uh, you're getting your just desserts. You reap what you sow. God says, oh, no, no, help them. That's the Christian way to do. And it may not be judgment on that person, but an opportunity for you to reach into someone's life and to turn their mind around about what Christianity is all about. Be slow to judge people. You do not have the warrant to snub people from Jesus. Not in this text. Not in this text. Pray for your enemies. One of the deepest forms of loving them is praying for them because it means you really have to want something good because you can't stand before God and fake it because he knows your heart. He sees exactly what's going on. So you have to stand before God and say, here is my heart. I'm struggling. (laughs) But Lord, help me to love them. Show me how to love them. Help me to do nice things for them. Help me to have a genuine desire for their good, for their benefit. Pray for them in the presence of God who knows your heart is a hard thing to do if you're faking it. But you pray for them. Pray for their conversion. That, that's the ultimate good, isn't it? That, that, that they know Christ as Savior. You could be praying for their repentance. It could be that they, you know, that they would be awakened to the sin that's in their heart. It may be that they've, you know, that you're praying that they they stop in this downward spiral of sin. But you're praying for them. You're praying for them because you care what happens to their soul. You care what happens to their family. You care. It's important because you love your enemies. Jesus is calling us not just to do good things for our enemy like greeting them, supplying them, but calling us to want their best and to express those wants and prayers even whenever our enemy is not around. Our hearts should want their salvation. Our hearts should want their presence in heaven. Our hearts should want their eternal happiness. And so we pray like the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 for the Jewish people, many of whom made his life miserable. The Judaizers following him around all different churches. But he says, my heart's desire is that they all might be saved. And it's funny how, and I'm out of time, so I apologize, but I find it no coincidence that God goes, Jesus goes straight into saying, so don't judge people. 
Don't judge. Don't you be making calls on what's happening. Don't you be deciding beforehand what this is or what this isn't and that there's no use for them and you can't speak to them and you can't be reasoning with them. That's not for you to decide. Your call is to love. Let God do the rest. Let God work in their lives because nothing is impossible for him. So don't get mad. Don't get even. Don't go start making proclamations over whether that person's any use or not. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and it will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now let's just finish this out, because I just want to finish on this verse. Why do you call me Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me king, and not respect my authority? Why, why do you, you want to sort of listen to what I say and then ignore what I'm saying? Remember in the book of Acts when Peter's up on the rooftop and he has that trance and, he, and the sheet comes down uh, from heaven and all this uh, unclean food is on it and Jesus says, look, arise, kill and eat. He goes, oh no, I, I can't do that, that's not right. And he says, not so, Lord, not so. What a strange thing. The perfect contradiction. No Lord, makes no sense. Could you imagine your boss saying, okay, do this. No way. Not a chance, boss. Doesn't work. How can you call me Lord and then say no way? No, if I'm the Lord, then you say yes way. You say okay I'll do it, whatever you say, because you are my Lord. You are my God. You are my King. Folks, the Lord has called on you to love your enemies, to give thyself, to live a life characterized by mercy and tenderness and a refusal to judge people and jump to defining conclusions about who they are. Otherwise, that's what we're going to get from people. But here's the challenge that you need to take on board, especially whenever the squeeze is on. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Lord? If he's your Lord, that'll be really revealed by what comes out when the squeeze is on. And maybe, just maybe, there's more people faking it. There's maybe some people who know Jesus as Savior. And I have no doubt that you are genuinely saved. But there's this part of you that still has not brought yourself fully into submission and says, and you are my Lord. I wonder if Jesus is Lord, you'll do as he calls. And he calls you to love your enemies. I'm going to ask the musicians to come on now. We're going to sing one more piece, and then I'll close in prayer, and then we'll uh, give thanks for supper. Father in heaven, it's been said that if you're not Lord of all, then you're not Lord at all. Lord, I pray that in every believer's heart in this place this evening, 
there would be a fresh conviction, a fresh desire to crown you Lord of all. Lord, nothing can we bring. Not Lord, we stand before you. It's only because of the blood of Jesus. It's only because of what you have done. And yet, Lord, we confess that we still need help in crowning you, Lord. Not to our shame. Why do we struggle so hard? And yet, Lord, we, we pray that in this moment, as we bow our heads and as we pray, Lord, may we crown you, may we declare you once again, Lord of our lives. Lord, that we would love those who make our lives that little bit harder. We always turn up their faces every time we mention church or whenever we start posting on Bible verses online or whenever we start sharing about what our faith means. Lord, I pray that we would keep on loving them. Lord, that we would keep on being who you need us to be, who you've called us to be before them. Lord, that they might see the beauty of Christ in us. That they might see the difference of Christianity to come back to all these other religions. Lord, I pray that they might see you in us. And we ask this in your precious and holy and beautiful and lovely name that's above all other names. Amen.